Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As we uh, start today's Political Rewind, I do want to send out a cautionary note. Two of our panelists, who I'll introduce in a moment, are covering the Georgia legislature. They are down to days 39 tomorrow and 40 on Monday. They have both been working far too many hours. And in talking to them before the show, it's clear they're a little bit giddy about the end of the session coming up. So we're going to try to keep this show as serious and straightforward as possible because there's a lot of legislative news that we want to look at um, with our great panel of journalists for today. Uh, One of the people who's not been covering the Capitol, but who, in fact, has to uh, oversee the content of the newspaper that he is the editor of, the boss, is my Thursday partner on the show, Kevin Riley. Kevin, uh, this is really a time when the AJC, like GPB News, really devotes an awful lot of our uh, time and space to legislative stories. You're uh, you're muted, Kevin. Unfortunately, we don't hear thank you. Thank you, thank you, Bill. Um, I'm sorry about that. Um, I couldn't be prouder of the job uh, our folks are doing at the Capitol. And um, the Getty or not, uh, I personally aspire to getting getting this, but I can never seem to get there. So. <laughs> um, I mentioned it on the show yesterday, but but as long as you're here today, a quick shout out. Uh, congratulations to your extraordinary team of political uh, reporters who. Uh, contributed to a very deep, in-depth look at everything about the 2020, the fraud, so-called fraudulent election um, and, and how that unfolded. And yesterday were declared the winners of the Toner Prize, which is a prestigious award named by in, at Syracuse University, named in honor of Robin Toner, who was a good friend of mine back in the day and unfortunately died way too young. She became the first national political reporter, female political reporter at the New York Times. I used to go on the road with Robin, but the point is congratulations, Kevin. Thank you. We're really proud of the award and uh, proud to be part of this show and proud to be doing our job for Georgians. All right. Um, Another Riley is with us today, Riley Bunch. She's the public policy reporter for GPB News. And Riley, you are covering uh, this session and uh, girding for the last couple of days. How are you holding up? Doing good. It's it's kind of fun and exciting at the same time because the atmosphere down there just changes when we get down to the wire and things start flying around and you never know what's going to happen. So excited for it to be over, but a fun time to be watching. Um, you're joined down there by AJC legislative reporter Maya Prabhu. Uh, Maya, um, how's it going for you? Um, I think I'm taking a slightly different um, approach than than Riley. Um, I am very stressed and very exhausted, <laughs> not to say that she isn't. And it is exciting, um, but I'm just, I'm ready for it to be over. <laughs> I, I understand that. We're also joined today uh, by Margaret Coker, uh, who is uh, the editor-in-chief 
of The Current, which you can read at thecurrentga.org, a terrific online news publication. Uh, But Margaret has uh, worked in journalism for, I know, more than two decades, a great deal of international experience, worked for some of the most important newspapers in the country, and now runs The Current, and we're so glad you could be here, Margaret. Thanks. Um, I will say also that we have a story online right now, an analysis about whether the legislative season should actually be more than 40 days, given the amount of money that uh, our legislators are supposed to be handling and budgeting. Um, You know, it's it's uh, I I see all these heads shaking. But seriously, we have a huge budget with the largest state east of Mississippi. And maybe we should think about full time legislators instead of 40 day legislators. That's really interesting. I, I want to look at that story, and that'll be good fodder for conversation on the show, uh, uh, perhaps next week, because the state has always prided itself in having a citizen legislature. Um, but uh, as you, it'll be interesting, Margaret, to see your uh, piece. Um, all right, let's get to what's happening down at the Capitol. Um, we have spent an awful lot of time on the show talking about the fact that Speaker of the House David Ralston said from the very beginning of the session that the most important bill, if, if he could do nothing else aside from pass the budget, the only other thing he really wanted to accomplish was his reform of mental health services in Georgia. Georgia is basically at the bottom of the heap when it comes to states and how they uh, set up the structures that provide for mental health services for uh, people here. Uh, Maya, before we talk about a little bit of the background, you wrote the piece for the AJC on the final passage of the bill, which was unanimous in the House. They had passed it, sent it to the Senate, where it ran into some trouble, we'll talk about briefly, came back to the House, passed unanimously. And if you don't mind my reading your words, you say, Ralston held back tears as he announced that the Senate had unanimously approved the measure that was his priority this year. His wife, Cherie, was standing next to him when he announced it because she had worked hard to get him to take up the bill. And then here's the quote you have. Today, hope won, Ralston said. Today, countless Georgians will know that we have heard their despair and frustration. We have set Georgia on a path of lifting up and reforming a failed mental health care system. Maya, this was a major victory for Speaker Ralston. Yes, you know, definitely. I sat down, I don't know what days are anymore. It might have been last week, it might have been the week before last, but I sat down with him when this bill hit some speed bumps. And um, in the article that I wrote after that, I, I remember saying, you know, if if he's worried, he doesn't seem to be. Um, and so I think he just remained steady. He knew what he wanted to do. He knew what he was and wasn't willing to compromise about and um, was just overcome with emotion uh, yesterday when when the bill got final passage. Riley, what are the most important things that this bill does to improve the mental health, the way mental health services are delivered in the state? Well, there's a lot in this bill. It's a very, very big bill, and they do talk about it as, you know, a first step in a long-term solution to this problem. So what it really strives to do is create this parity, which is kind of like the word of the legislative session, parity among um, insurers and law enforcement in response to mental health versus 
physical health, right? Um, so there's a lot in there that hold insurers accountable to giving similar benefits for the two things. I, I think another important thing to mention about this bill is we talk a lot about messaging of legislation. Um, we talk about messaging of bad bills, right? And I, I think that another huge win is the messaging for the Georgians that are suffering from mental illness and also substance abuse, which hasn't always been put on par um, with mental illness as well. So both of those um, sets of Georgians, right, they're, they're seeing this kind of effort from the legislature. And I think that's a huge win for this piece of legislation is just the message that it sends. Uh, Margaret, one of the things that the uh, bill tries to establish is to make Georgia a state which is more welcoming to mental health professionals. So, uh, for example, um, I think that Georgia has like something like eight psychiatrists, child psychiatrists, for 100,000 children, um, whereas the standard is typically 47. And in kind of the same way that it's hard to find doctors for rural Georgia communities, this bill starts to move us down a path toward encouraging more mental health professionals uh, to, to have reasons to want to work here. Yeah, it's, it's an incredibly difficult field um, to, to stay in. You know, I have um, a mother who's recently retired as a um, pediatric psych nurse. I have a mother-in-law who, who spent her career as a psych nurse. Mm -hmm. It is, it's difficult, it's grueling, and um, thankfully it's getting better pay right now because there's such a dearth of mental health professionals, um, unfortunately. But you, I, think that, I think that the pandemic, as well as the opioid crisis in America, has, has really um, helped to recalibrate people's opinion about what, um, how, how mental health issues affect families of all colors, of all socioeconomic backgrounds. It is not a black and white issue. It is a American, it's a Georgian issue. And so it's a real accomplishment to get uh, so many of our state legislators behind this bill. Kevin, uh, in an interview on this show, uh, Speaker Ralston told us something that he certainly said to other journalists. And that is one of the things that really persuaded him some time ago that this was necessary was the law enforcement uh, officials who came to him up in his community, up in Blue Ridge, and said that there needed to be something done because so much of the work they do is seeing people with mental health uh, issues that needed to be resolved. And so he was persuaded in part by that. And yet, Kevin, this bill ran into a far-right disinformation campaign in the Senate that threatened, at least for a short period of time, to derail the entire thing, Kevin? Yeah, I think this bill represents so many things uh, that are positives. Um, it's, it's about, as Margaret noted, Georgia moving ahead and recognizing that it's not the same state it was 20 years ago, and it has to do things to improve the quality of life. I think it's about the story that Speaker Ralston told about why he was doing it and the power of that of that story and and how it fits into all the things that have happened in our country and our state over the past few years where it's become clear that what we used to consider crime problems are actually mental health and addiction problems and the effort to deal with that and then of course i think it demonstrates uh 
all the things that are good, maybe not, we'll talk about some of the things that are bad, about having a very powerful leader in a key position at a key time. I mean, unanimous votes in both houses of the legislature, if that doesn't send a message about Ralston's ability to decide that something he considers important is going to be done, I don't know what would. Well, you know, Margaret, the other thing it does, I mean, aside from the fact that this bill starts moving Georgia in the right direction on mental health, it as as a citizens, as residents of the state, to see legislators in a time of such toxic partisanship come together is is a it is a, it's a sign of hope that in fact um, our elected representatives really can find ways to come together and overcome all of the divides that have separated them for and all of us for so long, Margaret. Yeah, and and you know to hear so many um, uh, people on both sides of the aisle and in both houses of the of the legislature have you know get to stand up and and give their own family stories mm-hmm. and. And you know the suffering that this causes everyone. If if it's your um, if it's your child who's suffering from mental health issues, if it's your spouse, if it's your brother, it's your sister, it's your neighbor. You know, again, it is unfortunate that um, that we're at this time and place in America where we all need to suffer so greatly um, with with a preventable problem and and with a a problem that can be mitigated by with with clear and better um, health coverage and and health care providers. It's it's extraordinary um, that we have, uh, as Georgians, come together on this. And you're right; it is incredibly hopeful as well. Um, one would believe that with uh, such a success story as as this bill soon to become law, you know that that leadership um, at the state house will be able to rally around other important um, issues that that Georgians care about as well. Bill, you know, you mentioned, and uh, I think uh, Maya and Riley, you know, both talked about how. The bill hit hit some rough patches. It was attacked from a fairly extreme, mis, uh, at best misinformed, bizarre. Um, and and Riley, do you think it signals that it, there is a limit to how how far the crazies will be tolerated now in the legislature? Well, I think it definitely signals the power of the more moderate Republicans in leadership, right? But um, Speaker Ralston, after the vote, said a very interesting thing regarding that kind of far-right pushback. He said, you know, that reminded him how important the truth is. And I thought that was so powerful because it kind of issues a little bit of a warning to the Republican lawmakers with how far they let kind of this right wing faction of Georgians that prop up these disinformation campaigns, how far do you let them go, right, if they're attacking something like the bipartisan mental health bill? So I I think this was this very short period of pushback was kind of a little bit of a wake-up call, but it did offer a look into the power that our leadership has in the legislature over these things. Uh, Maya and then and and then Margaret come back in. But Maya, first, um, just to make sure our listeners know what we're talking about, there was a far right group that uh, uh, came came in, started sending out emails, text messages, lots of mis not misinformation, disinformation, claiming that uh, this bill uh, protected pedophiles. Interestingly enough, uh, 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 tying it. Uh, to a Republican talking point about the Supreme Court 
hearings last week um, and other efforts by uh, the right wing to claim that Democrats, QAnon, to claim that Democrats are a part of a pedophile ring. Um, It suggested that uh, private insurance companies would have to treat conditions that go against the religious beliefs of business owners. It was complete disinformation, but it did gather steam for a short time. Yes? Yeah, you know, the hearings got boisterous. There were applause and boos during these hearings where folks filled hearing rooms. We had to be moved out of a smaller hearing room into a larger hearing room, and even then, not everyone could fit. Um, and, and it was this, uh, you know, like you said, this information campaign um, of people who, you know, who knows what, what the motivations were if they truly believe that the bill said these things. Um, but it also kind of spoke to, you know, a lot of these same people were in some of these other hearings regarding masks, regarding vaccines, and Republican leadership gave these folks air and oxygen. And I remember, you know, as I was walking around the building trying to figure out, like, where is this coming from? You know, maybe some of these people were emboldened by their ability to get their far right ideas uh, to be more accepted by Republican leadership and, and, and embodied in bills that they thought they would be able to do that this time, too. I wouldn't personally want to go up against the speaker, but, you know, that was a choice that they made. <laughs> Margaret? Yeah, when the legislative session opened earlier this year, we all were talking about how um, what was going to be passed um, and the tenor of the debate. It was basically a, a proxy battle between the state uh, the state Republicans and the the almost civil war that we see um, two big factions in right now. As we get to the end of the legislative session, it's interesting to see how uh, the establishment uh, GOP leadership is pushing back against disinformation, at least in this um, in this topic. And we get closer to the May primaries when Republicans are going against Republicans uh, to, for for state and, and federal office. And, uh, you know, I think I think it's an it's an interesting bellwether, um, the mental health bill um, and, and the passage that that it had. But again, I also say that at least here in coastal Georgia, you know, we, we have um, a lot of our state representatives who are doing internal polling to figure out just how powerful what we have now come to know as the Trump faction of the Republican Party is versus the establishment wing of the state party is. And I would say as well, there's probably some analysis to do about how Speaker Ralston has pushed back against that extremist wing and been able to pass um, pass this bill with with um, with unanimity, right? I mean, people have actually fallen into line behind the speaker after going on those rants and and trying to um, disrupt his his signature piece of legislation. Uh, Kevin, let's go on to another bill, uh, and that was uh, it ha- has been a bill that was uh, introduced in the House. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, at the beginning of the session, Speaker Ralston, uh, Governor Kemp. Both said, we passed a major sweeping election reform bill last year. We don't need any more this year. And yet, the House, in fact, passed a bill that uh, had more to do with the process of uh, counting the votes, the the process after uh, voting, than than last year's bill, which certainly had a big impact on how people voted. Um, And there was a lot of controversy about the measure. There were things in it that people, uh, voting rights groups, were upset about. Interestingly enough, 
the Senate looked at the bill, and in a hearing, local election officials came in and said, don't do this. We, we don't have, we're not going to get into the details of it, but it was putting a greater burden on how local election offices handled ballots, uh, the fact that they were going to have to show actual physical ballots to citizens that requested uh, looking at them and other measures. And the Senate stripped all of the controversial uh, items out of the bill after that hearing, and it's now really a very stripped-down bill that mostly basically uh, says that employers have to give people two hours off in in the early voting uh, time frame to go cast their ballot. There seems to be another victory for uh, the uh, anti-conspiracy theory of the fake election. Yeah, you know, the simplest way to understand what happened is that bill went from 39, 39 pages to two, right? So uh, that tells you a lot about, about what went on. And I do think you're right. I think that there is this growing concern among the people who lead efforts on the ground in, in our voting process, uh, being caught up in these conspiracy theories and being caught up in a lot of um, – efforts to create doubt about the election when they're simply trying to actually find the people and have the equipment and have the support and budget to just get votes counted and elections managed appropriately. Uh, I mean, we saw also this week that Fulton County tried to hire a new elections director and, and then the guy bailed out at the last minute. And I saw, uh, I saw Fulton uh, Commission Chairman Rod Pitts at an event yesterday and I asked him what happened. And he said, we don't know. We really don't know. And I, I just think there is, it's hard to find people to run elections. And the very people who run elections showed up in the Senate and they said, don't screw up our lives any more than you already have. Um, Riley, uh, there were Republican election officials, local officials who testified they think this bill would make their life much more difficult and Democrats as well. And after the Senate made the changes, 11 Democratic County Election Board members from across the state said in a statement, quote, this is a clear example of the progress that can be made when legislators listen to and take recommendations from local election officials. Another apparent uh, victory for comity, uh, C-O-M-I-T-Y, and uh, the ability for legislators to hear what their constituents uh, out there have to say. Yeah, I have this theory about this legislative session that's kind of like cooler heads prevailed in the end, right? So we saw that with Buckhead, and we saw that with the mental health bill, and we saw that with the um, the elections bill as well. And I think a really interesting thing is during kind of some of these those initial hearings um, on that bill, the local elections officials were at their giant conference that they have annually, um, kind of talking about all the changes, how they're going to go through FB202. My colleague Stephen Fowler was there and talked about, you know, um, threats against poll workers and what to do in terms of security. So lawmakers held off on any passage until the official, the election officials could come back and testify on this bill. And I think that if I was a legislator right now and I was not listening to how the laws I'm passing are affecting our elections officials and our poll workers, I wouldn't be doing my job because they were the ones that got the brunt of everything at the end of, you know, um, during the 2020 elections because of all the changes. 
Uh, okay, that said, uh, there are some bills still pending, and some already passed, that, in which uh, I think there are listeners out there would say maybe cooler heads didn't prevail. We'll get to those in a couple <laughs> of minutes. But, Margaret, before we get off the election story, I do think it's important that there was another blow struck against the big lie about Georgia's election when Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger uh, issued a report that showed that the theories that non-citizens voted in massive numbers and therefore uh, through the election to Joe Biden turned out to be completely false. The Secretary of State's office looked at uh, the ballots of people. Of, uh, they, they found 1,634 individuals whose uh, citizenship couldn't be confirmed when they applied for voter registration, and they were not allowed to vote. And apparently, the Secretary of State's office believes not a single non-citizen was able to cast a ballot after the uh, study, the investigation, which they did, Margaret. Yeah, and so I will um, I will ask all of our your listeners to to dial back to October 2020 and November 1st and November 2nd 2020 when every single person that I ever talked to in the state of Georgia said that we should be able to trust Georgia's electoral systems. Our electoral systems have have. Um, have, have been trusted for decades. And guess what? They were they should be trusted again. Um, no non-citizen voted, says uh, every single layer of authority that, that um, we should trust. So, uh, you know, what I, as, as a Georgian, as a taxpayer, as a journalist, you know, I'm really, I've, I've been really concerned about the way in which outside messaging has come to Georgia to, um, and, and, passed through, you know, all of our, all of our lives, you know, the big lie being one of them. It's really interesting to me that, um, that this uh, attempt to, to revise again our state electoral law, that it was Georgians telling Georgia's legislatures what, what needs to be done and what doesn't need to be done. When our state representatives that we elect actually listen to their, their constituents and listen to their neighbors, common sense does prevail. And so I will say again, that's, that's an incredibly optimistic uh, outcome, I think, just in terms of how Georgians view each other and, and where we're going as a state. And just super briefly, I just, you know, I got a chuckle out of the way. I mean, yes, the the audit found that no non-citizens voted, but I did find it interesting the way the Secretary of State's office framed the press release on that. It was that citizenship audit finds that 1,634 non-citizens attempted to register to vote. I just thought the framing of that was interesting when, when the, the meat of what happened was that no one who was not a citizen voted. All right. Uh, Let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show and come back with more on the legislature on today's Political Rewind. You know, I'm sorry if you didn't get the latest edition of the Political Rewind uh, newsletter in your inbox, in your email yesterday. Maybe it's because you haven't subscribed yet. (laughs) You could do that by going to gpb.org slash newsletters. We really love to have you uh, join us. Um, If it's any incentive, uh, this week's edition, I wrote a a personal essay at the top of it about uh, having achieved this age of 75 years and kind of all the changes I've seen in the broadcast industry since I've been part of it for more than almost 50 
year. So there's that and lots of really interesting tidbits about politics today. gpb.org slash newsletters. Maya Prabhu from the AJC, Kevin Riley, the editor of the AJC, Margaret Coker, editor-in-chief of The Current, which I didn't mention at the top, is based out of Savannah and covers coastal news particularly well, but also the rest of the state too. And Riley Bunch, public policy reporter for our own GPB uh, News. Um, Riley, just a quick um, um, uh, item or two here before we get back to some of the bills that we're going to get into with more detail. Margaret Coker had asked a question before the show started about what was happening with this bill that would have put some interesting prohibitions around the kinds of street protests that sprung up uh, in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter protests. There were some aspects of that bill which were very controversial. The one that I, part of it that I found particularly disturbing was you were going to now have to have a permit, I think three days in advance before staging a demonstration, which of course is contrary to the whole notion of some of these spontaneous demonstrations that spring up at important moments in our history. Yeah, and like you said, Bill, you know, this is a piece of legislation that was in response to kind of the mass protests that we saw um, with the Black Lives Matter movement, with the trials surrounding the killers of Ahmaud Arbery, right? And and this bill, um, it had not only that provision about the permits, but also it kind of put counties and cities on the hook um, for things that happened during these protests. And in the beginning of the session, you know, this bill kind of was going full steam in the Senate, but I'll shoot it over to Maya because we've hit a little bit of a road bump with this bill, and she has a great story to tell about this. Maya? Yeah, so last week the the bill was set to be heard in a House Judiciary Subcommittee, and um, I walked into the committee hearing. It was packed with people who were most likely, from the looks of them, prepared to testify against it. Lawmakers were pulling books of volumes of code off the bookshelves and, you know, studiously going through the bill and going through code. And the um, the sponsor did not show up. Um, The understanding, you know, from talking to folks is that that bill wasn't going to make it out of subcommittee. There were at least three people in that subcommittee hearing and subcommittees only have like three or five people, I want to say, um, who were planning to vote against it. And so the senator did not show up. Um, I think he's, what he told them was that he had a lot of other bills and other committees at the time. Um, and so he was unable to get there. But I wouldn't put it past him to try to find another vehicle, as they like to say, to to use some sneaky tricks um, to put uh, that bill into another piece of legislation. Uh, in the final days of the session, uh, what happens is a bill like that can be attached as an amendment to a measure which is still moving forward. It has to be ruled as germane to the main bill, and that comes uh, that, that is sometimes a, an issue, but, but it is the way that bills that haven't made it out uh, in time uh, can still get acted on. So we'll watch and see if that uh, develops. Kevin, um, the, uh, there are some other bills that we should spend a couple of minutes on. Uh, two of them relate to COVID. Governor Kemp has now signed the bill that it gives parents the power, not the schools, to decide whether their children will wear masks in school. Um, And then 
there's a bill that has passed the House which bans what they call COVID-19 vaccine passports. But what that really means is it would ban uh, any mandate that a, a government agency, a government contractor, schools can demand uh, that uh, people be vaccinated. So, Kevin, this comes at a time. I mean, we've had a lot of resistance to masks and vaccines anyway in the state. Now these come along at a time when the, the, the virus has diminished greatly, but there are people who fear it's heading back our way. And so there's questions as to whether these things come too soon. Yeah, I do think that it's another example of how uh, the public, you know, key public health issues or measures have been politicized rather than more deeply understood, which would be the better the better way to go at this. Um, that law, though, uh, the governor can uh, it, it declare a state of emergency on that mask law and uh, and and uh, um, it could suspend it. It is a thing should, you know, uh, it become clear that masks um, just would be crucially important at school. So I I just think that it's a reactionary bill um, that maybe uh, belies Riley's theory about cooler heads prevailing in this session. So, <laughs> Margaret. Yeah, I, I was going to make that um, exact point, not to be sarcastic, but but actually, um, you know, actually thoughtful. You know, we we have um, I, I come from a, a family where we have a lot of military officers. You know, the the U.S. Armed Forces are 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 have really put down, you know, a pretty a pretty clear line about the um, the need for vaccinations, the demand for vaccinations. You know, I think Georgians as well, who have, uh, you know, generally an incredibly um, strong and and proud uh, history and, and support of the U.S. Armed Forces, there, there just seems to be, um, a, you know, a way in which that, that state legislators could pivot, look at best practices that institutions who we all support and and um, and trust to to think about uh, masks and, and vaccines in the future. But for now, again. We're in a primary season where uh, Republicans are, are struggling um, against competitors uh, in a way in which we have not seen for decades in Georgia. So, um, yeah, political issues and public health, it's a, it's a continuing theme for 2022. I would just jump in right behind that and totally agree. You know, it's, it's interesting that we've been through, what, two years of the pandemic and the legislation that we're seeing, like this is the type of COVID reactionary legislation that we're seeing in the legislature, right? There's not a lot of bills dealing with kind of COVID issues that have arised. But also, I would say that Republicans have had a, a success, um, national success with kind of these issues in terms of against the federal government, right? So um, th there's been courts that have stopped Biden's vaccine mandates for federal workers, federal contractors. So this is an area like the vaccine passports with Kemp that is, this is a win for Republicans. So it doesn't surprise me that there, it's, this issue is coming out in terms of on the state level. Maya, um, he, the, the governor's uh, a quote on, on this, Tai Tagami, your, your colleague, wrote the story. Here's what he said after signing the bill. This will ensure that parents have the final say when it comes to the health and well-being of their child. It is common, a common sense measure that puts parents in charge, not the government. And of course, there he's talking about signing the mask bill. Uh, leaving it up to parents to make that decision. And this brings us back to a conversation we have had on this show for two years, which is this notion that um, it's individual rights, not the community's 
rights that have to uh, prevail? It's just, it's been an interesting, as someone who is immunosuppressed, right, I I tell this story, I still wear a mask in the Capitol, not a lot of people do. I'm triple vaccinated, I had COVID in January. In February, when I had my antibodies tested, I had zero antibodies, right? So I still wear my mask. And it's just this idea that, you know, they only think, they say kids, kids fare well, if they catch COVID, they're fine. But it's like they don't think about the next step that these kids can pass it on to vulnerable people, vulnerable people like me or like their grandparents who um, might not fare as well. You know, I was triple vaccinated and it knocked me down. I was out for a week and, um, you know, I didn't understand why. And then once I had my antibodies tested after then also having COVID, I'm like, oh, OK, I have no antibodies, even though I've been vaccinated three times. So it's just it's an interesting, you know, this lack of sense of community and 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 like, I don't want to say that they don't care about their neighbor, but it just it kind of feels like that. Obviously, I have personal investment in this because, you know, it's something that that affects me personally greatly. Kevin? It's, it's, maybe it's a bit of a shame that the uh, pandemic more or less is drawing to a close in an election year. And the proposals and the efforts are aimed a little bit more at the red meat politicization of what happened during the pandemic. Because wouldn't it be better if what the legislature was focused on was, gosh, Georgia's public health system was exposed at not nearly what one of the leading states in the union ought to have. Our ability to share information statistically uh, on a pandemic and get people tested and set up the you know, the best possible ways for them to get vaccinated when something like this arises. Those are really the things you'd love to see the legislature figuring out and the governor figuring out how to do and to fund. And there's some of that going on. But instead, we get these kind of bills that are just playing to a political base or creating an argument that isn't really advancing our state or helping us position ourselves to be the kind of state for the 21st century that can continue to be as successful in every way uh, in the ways that got us here, where people in the past did bold, smart things to make sure Georgia's future was secure. Margaret, you're down there in Savannah. Van Johnson, the mayor of Savannah, was the first mayor of a Georgia city to institute a mask mandate at the very beginning of the pandemic. And he that mandate was lifted, then it was reimposed. So Savannah has taken this very seriously from uh, the start. And um, I'd be interested in where the mayor, I'm not suggesting necessarily you've talked to the mayor yet, but it'd be interesting to know what Van Johnson thinks about this legislation. Yeah, so um, I have not talked to um, Mayor Van about this legislation, but I will say that there has been um, a lot of unanimity in a in a in our town which generally has a very divided city council about um about the 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 ways in which that our town is going to reopen and figure out a way to reach normal whatever that means in 2022 um savannah celebrated our saint patrick's day um parade which is a huge huge um um event uh, both for city pride but also for for businesses and and so far, so good, right? I mean, the, the beauty of living in coastal Georgia is that springtime means we can all be outside, which, as we all know from, from the science, means that um, the, um, the, the, you're, you feel much safer in terms of the ability for transmission of, of this virus and, and others. But, you know, there's this 
our, our school district in Chatham County and, and throughout coastal Georgia, the rest of the school districts, you know, there's been the same struggle that everyone else in, in the state of Georgia has, has seen about very vocal parents who um, oppose mask mandates and um, school officials uh, trying to figure out the best balance between safety for children, safety for teachers, safety for everyone else that helps make our schools run. You know, we we had a huge uh, um, dearth of school bus drivers in Chatham County at the start of of the school year last fall. You know, these um, generally are people who are older, um, who also might be um, have have health issues, but they're also uh, being able to to go to other professions right now and make more money. You know, we're going to hit fall, whether or not we have another surge of, of a COVID um, um, variable over the summer. We're going to get back to fall without having filled jobs that need to be filled in order for our children to get um, good educations. And that is, again, from the cafeteria workers to school bus drivers to teachers. Um, Brian Kemp, of course, has just given teachers uh, um, his promised bonus. I don't know what teachers feel about this piece of legislation. Maybe that's another um, question for you guys to uh, to consider as we move forward with um, with the legislative right. session. It's, it's a good 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 idea, um, Riley. Before we get to break, let's take up one last measure. Um, <clears throat> before the break, um, we were some people were a little bit surprised a couple weeks ago when the bill that would have uh, given voters in the state the power to decide whether we should have uh, gambling in Georgia, specifically horse race gambling, paramutual wagering. We were surprised when it went down in the Senate as easily as it did, particularly since it was the rules chair, Jeff Mullis, who had brought the bill uh, forward. So we thought it might be dead for the session. But as you've said already, Riley, things are never quite dead until the gavel on the 40th night. Uh, It looks now like there could be an effort to get uh, a referendum established around sports betting or other forms of gambling. Yes? Yeah, and gambling is just one of those issues that it's pops up every year and it never goes away until it does on the final day. So we're always waiting for it. But um, it's also one of those things where there is support from the Republican Party for it. But there's also a faction of Republicans, the more conservative ones who don't want it. Right. And that's the pushback they're, they're getting. And right now there is a bill that allows for sports betting, but horse gambling, horse betting is not up for question anymore. So we'll see what the bill, if it reaches the floor and what the final um, proposals are in it. So well, here's what I think we should pay attention to on the betting uh, bill and the betting legislation. And I talked to one of the lo- a couple of lobbyists actually yesterday. Um, the sports teams in Atlanta are pushing really hard for the micro betting. That means the Hawks, the Braves, the Falcons, and I think Atlanta United. And they they have positioned it not as gambling and let's you know create the wild west here in Atlanta. They're they're positioning it as this is important to Georgia for two reasons. The first, we are up against other states and teams, our competitors, where this is allowed, and therefore we're being left behind. And second, for them, it's an engagement situation. In other words. They believe that the next generation of fans will demand the ability to do this as they watch a game in person or on TV. I think that gives that part of the legislation a really good chance because who doesn't want a couple of nice side, nice courtside tickets from the Hawks if they're sitting in the legislature during the uh, during the season? All right. We got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back with more with a terrific panel after these messages.
Riley Bunch, Maya Prabhu, Margaret Coker, and Kevin Riley uh, join me. We're getting down toward the end of the show. Very, uh, Margaret, you sent a link to the story you mentioned in the current about should we, in fact, have a longer legislative session. Uh, we all, I think all of you listen, know we watch each other on WebEx, although we can't broadcast the video. As you were saying that at the beginning of the show, Riley Bunch was shaking her head no very, very vigorously. I suspect Maya Prabhu may very well feel the same. But, Margaret, uh, you said to it. We'll set, we will uh, uh, put a link to this piece up on our social media platform. But just quickly on this, um, the story uh, which was uh, uh, written by uh, Craig Nelson quotes Chuck Bullock, who's a frequent panelist on this show, the University of Georgia uh, political science professor, kind of the dean of political science professors. And he said, here's the quote, four decades ago, Georgia didn't have half the population we have now. We're the eighth most populous state in the country. Um, You look at the responsibilities the state has and say, how can you get all that done effectively in a short period of time? So Chuck is pushing for maybe longer sessions. Margaret, just give us a couple other little nuggets out of that story. Right. So the state of Georgia, we have roughly a $30 billion state budget. There are a lot of incredibly complex topics that that get discussed um, within the legislature. And right now we have um, very, very dedicated public servants who are getting paid $17,000 a year um, to decide a lot of incredibly complex legal, financial, uh, health, Uh, education. I mean, the policy issues are enormous and and very important. So the the big question that we asked is, should we we professionalize um, the political class of of people who are helping decide these issues? The flip side of this, of course, is that that special interests, lobbyists, um, are are very, very involved in helping um, policy move through um, the state house, right? We have people who are are have conflicts of interest who are very, very determined to get pieces of of legislation passed, and um, our legislators are going up against them every single day, perhaps for good, perhaps for ill. But when you're only paid seventeen thousand uh, dollars to to try to decide all these complex issues, it means that there's a certain amount of of um, Georgians. Whether you come from a rural area, you can't leave your farm. If you come from an urban area, you can't leave a full time job. I mean, the people who are making the decisions are also a, a minuscule amount of of the diversity that that Georgia is and has within our population. So I'll I'll leave that up for for discussion. Yeah, I think Margaret makes some fantastic points. And I, while I haven't read the piece yet, I will, because I always set aside time to read the current, Margaret. So, um, But <laughs> I also think it's important to remember this, this, this debate, this discussion, this issue happens uh, you know, with a philosophical backdrop, right? Do you believe that government ought to be very uh, inactive? not intrude much on people's lives and do as little as possible? Or do you believe that government must step up and solve problems that only it can solve? And I think, you know, you're talking about a Southern state, a conservative tradition, and people, I mean, you've heard people say this, they like the idea that legislature can't do much damage in 40 days is the kind of things people will say. And that, I think, is a big question for this state as it becomes so important in so many ways is whether this can continue to work. 
Well, I will say it goes beyond just the state. Uh, Maya, b- b- back in the day, uh, a cliche that I heard frequently when I was in Washington covering uh, Capitol Hill was the worst thing that ever happened to the country was when central air conditioning was installed in the Capitol building, <laughs> allowing legislators to meet year-round. <laughs> yeah, you know, this idea of, of year-round legislation, uh, legislative sessions kind of uh, makes my stomach hurt a little bit, but I think about uh, <laughs> I previously worked in in South Carolina, and uh, I still have friends there who still cover the legis the the legislature. And you know, I said in my group chat last night, I was like, oh, I just can't wait until I get past Monday when we have signy die. <laughs> and my friends like, yeah, our crossover week is next week. Yeah. They go through uh, almost into June, and. Um, and yeah, I just I am I am grateful that our legislative session is as short as it is. Um, but I, I I understand the the thought process behind um, having more time to get into some of these more complex issues. Riley, just to give a final note, you know, I definitely see both sides of the issue, but I would also argue that if that is ever the case, you would want to put more investment into the local journalists who cover the legislature <laughs> and hire more of them. So. Finally, something we can all agree on, Riley. Yeah, <laughs> I do my best. It is a, I, Margaret, that's it. I'm really glad you brought this up. You know, it, the companion to this is the fact that legislators are saying, you know, it's we deserve more money for the 40 days that we work here. And I think there's been largely agreement in many quarters, journalists saying, yeah, we see them work every day. We know how much they do, and they are underpaid, which is interesting. So that's a different aspect in some ways of the uh, fact that we respect the kind of work that goes on. And by the way, Margaret, we're about out of time, but as long as we've been talking about The Current, you have a new partnership that I wanted to give you just a quick second to mention. Thank you. Yeah, so the um, the nation's oldest and I think most respected investigative news organization, I'm sorry, nonprofit news organization, ProPublica, has named us as one of their newest uh, local reporting partners. So um, that's a great uh, vote of confidence for the kind of journalism that we're doing um, across the state. Uh, we should say Stephen Fowler on our staff has worked a, a lot with ProPublica, and they have a great partnership, too. So I, I think we'll see the benefits. We've seen the benefits to our organization. You'll certainly see them at the current. We're out of time for today's political rerun. I really wish we weren't. This has been a great conversation with a terrific panel. Maya Prabhu of the AJC, Riley Bunch of GPB News, Margaret Coker of The Current, and my good friend, the editor, the boss of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Kevin Riley. Thank you all so much for uh, the conversation today. Um, that's it for our show today. We're back again tomorrow. Our final TV show of the legislative session is going to be tomorrow night at 7 o'clock on GPB TV, but we'll be on the air and the radio tomorrow morning and at 2 o'clock in the afternoon as usual. Jesse Neiswanger, Sam Burmis Dawes, Natalie Mendenhall be right there with me as we bring the show to you. Thanks, everybody, for today. See you all tomorrow. In the meantime, please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye.
At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.